You only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realise that the Tab Highway concept has been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, the prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. From a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The Tab Highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. When Shane Scriven completed his riding commitments at Rockhampton on June 23, 2012, he had no idea his distinguished career was over. He made the long trip to ride three horses, two for Ron McCall and one for Fred Smith, and he finished the day with two-thirds and one-fourth. It was only three days after he'd landed a winning double at Doombin for Neville Peterson and Kelly Schweder. By the time Shane was back in Brisbane, he knew it was all over. He was 47 years old, his opportunities were drying up, he was tired of the horrors of the sweatbox, and he certainly had nothing more to prove. 1,500 winners in four countries, six Group 1 victories, a Brisbane Jockeys Premiership when in his early 40s, and an unshakable reputation as one of Queensland's best jockeys ever. A year after his retirement, he began his association with Racing Queensland as a mentor and tutor to young jockeys and a consultant to those with personal problems. And he continues in that role today. It's a big welcome to former champion Queensland jockey, Shane Scriven. Yeah, morning, Tappy. How are you? Good, son. Lovely to talk. It's been a long time. We flew you down to Sydney one Sunday a long time ago for an interview on Sky's Inside Racing. I forget how long, but it wasn't yesterday. <laughs> uh, you're right there, Johnny. Uh, yeah, I'd hate to put a year on it too, but uh, a lot of water under the bridge since then. You've been with Racing Queensland for seven years, on call for any jockey needing advice, guidance or consultation on a range of problems. What are the problems that they come to you with? Yeah, John, after I uh, I hung the boots up, I was lucky enough to, to join um, the team at, at Racing Queensland, predominantly to, well, j- just to improve the, the, the riding ranks of, of Queensland. John, uh, it's it's involved now to to um, be looking after the apprentices and all sorts of things, John. You know, obviously to do with their, their race riding, you know, tactics, form, style, that sort of stuff. Um, or if they, you know, whether it's a, a shoulder to, to cry on or some advice or mm. uh, anything at all, uh, I'm I'm there for them. Shane, racing Queensland has access to professional people in many different fields, people that you can refer jockeys to. Who's available? Yeah, yeah John, uh, we, we do in the, in the department. We have those, you know, whether they're accountants or sports psychologists, 
now. There's there's all these professionals that we can guide them into the the, the right direction. The, the the pressures of the job now, being uh, that it's almost a seven day a week uh, job for the the younger people now. A lot lot more pressure on them to perform and that. So yeah, we, we have a range of people to to direct them in. And you're enjoying it. I, I do, John. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, it's a a lot different to to swinging a, a leg over a, a, a thoroughbred, but um, mm. and I I miss that every every minute of the day. But reality had to set in at some time, and uh, at, at least I'm involved with the people that I've been involved with for mm. decades now. So that's that is a good part of the job. The only way you were able to retain your sanity during 33 years as a jockey was to take regular breaks. Now, after your final meeting at Rockhampton, you said nothing about your impending retirement to family for about three months. In fact, they simply thought you were having another one of your little breaks and you waited until Father's Day 2012 at a family luncheon to make the announcement. Yeah, that's right, Johnny. It was uh, the, the thought had been going through my mind for numerous years, for five or six years. You know, with the, it getting older every time I, you know, whether it was a suspension or an injury or, or just one of those uh, breaks that I would take uh, to, to come back and lose the amount of weight I had to was was always getting harder. So the the thought was always there, but I, I never had the I, I couldn't pinpoint the exact date. Yeah, and um, funnily enough, I, I went to a Broncos lunch one day. I was pretty good mates with with Alan Langer, and mm. and Alfie had only just recently retired himself after being you know one one of the best players ever to lace up the boots. Mm. And I thought, well, I'll I'll ask Alf. You know, how, how did he know, or what was the what was the trigger that that um, you know, the, when the penny dropped that he had to retire or wanted to retire? And I can remember Alan. Uh, it, it was as simple as he just said, "You'll know." And I remember being—I was, I was half sort of dirty on him because that was, you know, I wanted him <laughs> to tell me what what is it, what how will I know? Yeah. He just tell me that I will know. And lo and behold, he was right. John, yeah. it was when I I come home after being in Rocky. Uh, I, I'd had a long-term commitment to go over to Kalgoorlie and and ride in Invitation over there, which I'd never ridden. In uh, in WA before, and I was mm. I was looking forward to that, but it was wh- whatever that was in in the old brain. I just I, I couldn't do it anymore. I I didn't want no. to do it, and no. and after so many years of that's why I would take those breaks because uh, I'd, I'd get into those moods where you know it's it's too blasted hard and mm. need a bit of a break and to get away from it, freshen up, and then. It would be just that day where I thought, right, today's the day where we start again. Mm. And I waited quite a while to get that feeling back mm. uh, towards the end there, but it, it never did come and, until the one day when I woke up and I was starting to let people down, which mm. I didn't like to do, no. you know, missing, missing track work. And uh, I actually told my mates in, um, in WA that I didn't have it in me to, to go and ride over there, and that's when I decided that... Um, mm. Alf was right. That I, I knew that was the time mm. for no particular reason, only that uh, that the time was nigh. Just to illustrate 
the enormity of the battle you waged with weight. Let me quote from an article I read just last week, which said, within 10 days of that final ride at Rockhampton, you were 68 kilos. Is that true? It, it, it would be, Johnny. You know, it was nothing for me to have a uh, to to rapidly gain weight uh, like that. Um, for it to be so rapid and so much, uh, I can probably tell you there was a, a fair bit of neglect go into that. You know, I dare say I would have uh, celebrated my my retirement with uh, with over eating and over drinking for for probably quite a few days. But <laughs> you know, d- during my career. You know, if, if I were to have a, a decent meal on a Saturday night and then have a, a lay day on a Sunday, you know, it'd be nothing to wake up, at, you know, in the in the mid sixties on a Monday morning and, and mm. start again. That that, that was regular, um, but again, part of the course. You know, I was no martyr, John. Mm. You know, a lot of the boys creep up like that, you know, and and then we'd get stuck back into it. Uh, probably not the the way to do things back in the day. You know, we were all educated i remember when uh, when starting off um and strangely enough i was only a little fella you know i think i walked into tommy dawson's being about 32 kilos i, I couldn't carry mm. a full bucket of water um and and that that lasted for a few years until mother nature took over but it was common knowledge that you know you a jockey back in those days you just you, you weren't to eat you know you, you just don't eat you put the plastic bags on, you know. You go for a jog, or you sit in the sweat box, um, and and that's how jocks did it uh, back in those days. Mm. Obviously, today we we have nutritionists and dietists and and all sorts of things to um, to look after your health in in a lot better ways. Mm. Well, your late mum Bev and your dad Noel encouraged you and your sister Sharon to ride when you were kids and you had enough space at home to keep a pony for you and a show horse for Sharon. Now, Sharon enjoyed the elegant disciplines like dressage, but not young Shane. He liked the hustle and bustle of the pony club events. Yeah, you're right there, Johnny, and unfortunately, uh, we, we both, our, our best little pony was a, a little grey mare called Gay Blue, and uh, oh, she was a champion in, in both. You know, Sharon would ride her in the shows and then we'd, we'd rip the sa- show, show saddle off her mm. and throw my poly on her and, and, and race her around the barrels. So, um, and she adapted well to it. She'd come out of the ring being, a, you know, winning a, a pony hack and then, you know, run, uh, run track records for a, for a barrel race. She, she was a little beauty. Um but yeah, that caused a bit of controversy, you know. Sharon would always be saying that I'd I'd mark with my spurs or stir her up, and <laughs> and uh, I'd be saying to her, you know, when she plaited a mane, I used to hate the mane being plaited when I was trying to to race it. But uh, yeah, they, they were the good old days. We had a lot of fun, Mum and Dad. Every weekend, we'd be packing up, and, yeah. and whether it was to go to a show or a gym car or whatever it be, um, but that was our our for the weekend. Right, so there was the odd sibling argument between you and Sharon. Oh, I'd nearly say more than odd, Johnny. <laughs> yeah, they, they, were, they were quite regular. Well, you're good mates in this day and age because in a few minutes' time when we conclude 
Our interview, you're going around to Sharon's place to celebrate your dad's 83rd birthday. Uh, yes, yeah, uh, God bless him, he's, he's still with us. Uh, he probably misses the races as, as much as I do. There were very few uh, race meetings would go by that, that uh, well, both mum and dad um, w- would attend. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, we, we lost mum several years ago, but dad was still a, an advocate. He, he uh, if I call him a punter, that's a, an abuse of the word. You know, he, he'd have his dollar each way on just about everything I rode. Um, he, he again knew everybody there. He'd, he'd keep an eye open and an ear open for you know what was going on around the tracks. Mm. And uh, oh, towards the latter years, he, he became a pretty good um, uh, babysitter too. When I used to have to take my daughter to the races, <laughs> so he was j- jack of all trades and very handy. Well, your first attempt to become an apprentice jockey failed. Your dad took you around to see the well-known trainer Roy Dawson about an apprenticeship and he knocked you back. You must have been devastated. Yeah, I was, Johnny. We'd, um, we we had friends through the Pony Club um, and, you know, it was time to – well, the junior school was, was finishing and I, I must admit I, I wasn't much good at the education side of it and certainly didn't like it. Mm. Um, and I had a few options, you know, where it was either join the army or become a jockey. Um, and and our friend knew Mr. Roy Dawson, mm. so yeah, we we fronted up to his patio there one one Sunday afternoon, and as they did back then, he uh, he took one he, he took a look at my hands and my feet, mm. and uh, he said, "Sorry, son, you'll get too big," mm. and and that was about where we left it. Um, and you're right, I was. I was devastated at that stage. You know, I was, I was only a tick over 30 kilos mm-hmm. and, and I thought I could ride a horse pretty good and, and, and that, but uh, that was certainly a bit of a shock. But it wasn't long after that the um, we, we had other friends that um, introduced us to Mr. Tommy Dawson. No relation? No, no relation. No, mm-hmm. only, only that uh, their relation was that they were both fantastic horse trainers. Mm. Um. Went round to Tommy's stable. Uh, Mrs. Dawson hadn't been well for a number of years. Tommy had had, had apprentices all that way through, but he, he was trying to cut down on his on his numbers. He certainly wasn't in the in the mood to have another apprentice. Uh, um, but he, he sort of asked me a few questions. In the end, he threw me up on one of his ponies. We had the the vacant block next door where we used to trot the horses round, and mm. and I, I I swung up on this. Oh, uh, little grey gelding he was, mm. and uh, yeah, Tommy just said, um, you know, he, he won't be going anywhere, and and I don't think I left uh, Tommy's establishment for about the next five years. Yeah, so, he liked what yeah. he saw. Oh well, there was something about me, uh, I suppose. It was obviously my my riding that did, because we we'd butt heads over the years to come. Too the uh, the old boy and I, but um, uh, it uh, it's ironic that it, it takes you years and years of of that to realise that he was he always had my best interests at heart, mm. as tough and as uh, as mean I would have thought that he was to mm. to us apprentices in those days. Well, Tom Dawson, who died in two thousand and fifteen at the remarkable age of ninety eight, was never a big team trainer. 
but he usually had a good horse in the place. Now, before you came along, Shane, he'd trained Charlton Boy, whose 15 wins included a Doomban 10,000, and I'm a Shadow, who won an amazing 31 races. Now, you didn't see those horses, but I bet you heard plenty about them. Yeah, again, you're right again, Johnny. Um, he, he was renowned. They're the two horses that um, that, that Tommy was renowned for. Um, and you're right, he always had a good horse. If not one, there was always two or three, really. Um, mm. not, not a big team. Uh, that's the way he liked it. Uh, you know, we, we lived on premises uh, under the house at first, and then we we moved in to the the house next door. When I say we, there was um, uh, I'll tell you, he was he was funny. I was well, Jeff Mackay was my senior apprentice, uh, and then he, he didn't want another one, and he took me on. And then a, a young skinny lad walked through the door one day called Jamie Bayless. Mm. Um, same sort of story as me. Uh, he he promised. Mr. and Mrs. Bayless, that uh, he won't take him, but he'll make sure that he goes to someone good. Well, well, Jamie got laid up, and <laughs> Jamie was a pretty good horseman himself. And yeah. at one stage there, we, we had the three apprentices uh, doing all the work. And us three boys, we, we got along well. Mm. Um, and he, prior to us, back in those good horses days, he'd always had a pretty good apprentice too. Mm. Um, George Sorden had gone through under him, uh, Ricky Leesfield. There were a lot of good apprentices there. Uh, but uh, again, I, I reiterate, he, he was a tough, hard old boss, mm. but he was uh, doing the well, what he thought best was us at the time. And, Johnny, I don't have to tell you that, you know, we were probably a little bit, um, you know, 15, 16-year-old larrikins straight yeah. out of school thinking we could take on the world. Mm. Uh, we needed a fair bit of bit of man-handling back in them days. <laughs> well, just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast, Shane. Back with you after this. Sunday, July the 5th will be a unique day in the long history of Inglis when two major sales come together as traditional physical auctions at the world-class Riverside Complex at Warwick Farm. At 10am sharp, Easter Round 2 will get underway with 94 outstanding lots by world-class stallions like Brazen Bow, Deepfield, Dundeal, Exceed and Excel, Not a Single Doubt, Fastnet Rock, Frankel, I Am Invincible, Lonro, Schnitzel, Piero, and So You Think, with first season sires like American Pharaoh and Capitalist represented. Inglis have decided to bring the famous scone sale to Riverside this year with a catalogue of 156 lots. This auction will begin immediately after Easter Round 2 concludes. All horses will be at Riverside from Thursday, July 2nd for your inspection. Who would have thought the famous Easter sale would have a winter session? Who would have dreamed the popular scone sale would come to town? Inglis have taken extraordinary steps to accommodate vendors and buyers in extraordinary times. It's really happening. Easter Round 2 and the scone sale together under the same roof on Sunday, July 5th. A special guest is Shane Scriven. Your first ride in a race was on a little sand track at a place called Wandai, a long way from Brisbane. Was it an impressive debut? Far from it, John. Um, remember the nerves, uh, you know, having my first ride, very exciting. They were always exciting nerves. 
Uh, and I, I probably slept most of the way. Again, mum and dad, we packed up the car because it's a fair sort of drive. Um, but no, I can't, can't recall the day, really, John, only that it was a, yes, it's a tight little sand track. I swallowed plenty of dust that day, uh, <laughs> as I did for the, for the next few months, you know, tripping around the, the bush tracks of Queensland. There were places that I'd never heard of. And, and there was certainly some, some traveling, you know, we'd, we'd finished track work at the wee hours of the morning and it. You, you didn't have time for a sleep in. It was you jump in the shower, pack your bag, and 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 hit the road. Yeah. Um, but again, all good grounding out there. You know, it it, it taught you one thing, um, and and then the the idea was to progress as your your talents as a jockey improved. You you would go up the, the line with your licences and start riding at, at bigger and better places. So, uh, but for me, that that took a little while. I think it was. Quite a few months before I rode a winner, um, started to think that maybe I'd, I'd made the wrong choice. Um, but I think it was, I remember it was New Year's Day, first of the first 81, I reckon. It might, if it wasn't 80, it was 81. Mm-hmm. Um, at a, another bush track, sand track, Gimpy, that I rode, I, I rode a double that day, my, my first day. So yeah, yeah. I was happy that I was kicking that year off on a winning note. And uh, yeah, things things started to roll on from there. Now, Shane, that winning double comprised horses by the names of the Great Ali and Go Pal Go. Now, the Great Ali was a thoroughbred, but Go Pal Go wasn't, and I'm puzzled by that. Can you explain that to me? Yes. Um, again, back in those days. Uh, a, a few of the bush tracks would have quarter horse races. Um, you just, just short, short ones. I think uh, there, there were two distances at Gympie, and and I'd be wrong in quoting them, but there was I thought the the sprint race was 420 metres, and the stay-in race was 560 metres, um, which were all held at the, the top of the straight. And these little pocket dynamos would would sneak into the barriers. They run under. Uh, race conditions and mm. and you know, betting and all all that sort of stuff, um, but but they were fun. Johnny, they were the fastest horses I've I've ever ever ridden. Yeah, uh, they they'd run phenomenal time. They couldn't run far, but by geez, could they run fast? Mm. So that was Go Pel Go. He was trained by a very good quarter horse trainer, um, and and then was the Great Ali, who I. I would have got the ride because of my three-kilo claim. He was mm. well up in the weights from memory, and, and he was a bit of a, a gimpy specialist. Mm. So it, it was a good fun day. Well, there's one for the trivia buffs. As recently as 1981, quarter horse racing was officially recognised by the QTC, who were then controlling racing in Queensland. Yep, there you go. Um, it was it, a registered it, race, the, the one you won on a quarter horse. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I remember we, you know, they would, they'd usually be held either before the, the first or, or after the last, but it, it was part of the program. Mm. I mean, they'd, they'd only have two races. As I said, there'd be the sprint race and then the staying race, which is only a, a couple of uh, hundred, a uh, couple of metres even further. Mm. So we, we would have to weigh out the stewards, you know, I think there was a protest uh, one day in a in, in the quarter horse race. So yeah, they were 
they were part of the scene back then. Um, almost wish we still had them today. It, it, it was fun. Your boss, Tom Dawson, very fittingly trained your first city winner. It was a mile race at Eagle Farm. The horse was called Ben's Bark or Ben's Back, and it was a very special occasion for young S. Scriven. Yes, Johnny, it was. I can remember uh, the McNichols owned him. They were good clients of, of Bombs, and uh, he'd... I'm sure the boss had set this horse up for, for me. We we thought he had a good chance. He was uh, into one of those graduations, again, back in those days, and with my my claim, he got into the race very well. Um, yeah, Johnny, you're, you're testing the memory now. Don't ask me. I, I remember going over the line, and I hadn't put a lot of weight on then. Um, you know, I was still a little, uh, well, red hair, freckle face, lightweight, skinny little run to the kid. Um, <laughs> but it, it was good. And, you know, the, the trainers would always try and get their apprentices to, to ride a winner uh, early on so that you'd get your name up in lights and, and mm. the, the ball would start rolling. Mm. You rode track work quite often in that era with a couple of senior jockeys who became real role models. You've never forgotten them. Yeah, well, again, because Tommy was uh, such an astute trainer, um, our two jockeys that he'd put on were Mel Shoemaker and Graham Cook. Gee. Um, and, and again, it was you know, riding track work with the likes of them, uh, especially Cookie. Mel, Mel was a gifted horseman, but, uh, it, well, he, he could never actually explain to you what, what he did. He... he mm. He had the best hands I've ever seen. Um, horses that I, I could never hold them because I wasn't um, uh, strong enough. But Mel would always tell you, strength's got nothing to do with it. it it's all in technique. He, he would have to ride the hardest pullers and they'd go around off a loose rein. Um, but it was, it was Cookie that I, I like to think he, he took me under his wing a, a little bit, uh, taught me a few tricks of the trades. Um, obviously being a great rider himself, and I'd started to ride in, in town with him. And, yeah, he was he was my mentor that I liked to sit beside in the room. And and I suppose if I uh, – I, I didn't like to cop anyone. I certainly had my own style. Mm. But um, any problems – I remember one day I was having trouble getting horses out of the barriers, and it was a simple little cue that the cookie told me what to do. And that problem was fixed. So they're the sort of jockeys you, you wanted to be um, tutored by. Mm. Well, you had to come to Sydney to ride your first Group 1 winner. It was a Queensland filly called Tingo Tango for trainer Doug Bagore. Now, you'd won a couple of two-year-old races on this filly in Brisbane and then she came to Sydney in the spring of 1985 to run fifth in the Silver Shadow. You rode her that day. Then she won the Reginald Allen Handicap, ridden by the late Stephen Jeffries. Now, you were missing that day for a very good reason. Yes. Um, well, I was on my honeymoon, um, actually, with, with Doug's daughter mm. uh, back in those years. Um, again, a, a good filly. She'd, she'd proven herself as a, as a handy two-year-old. But she had three-year-old uh, written all over her. She was 
that you could see the development after a bit of a spell. And, and sure enough, when she'd come back in into a three-year-old season, um, you know, we thought the the Princess Series was a beautiful set of races for her, mm-hmm. you know, from the, the 1,200 into the 14, into the mile. Um, and yeah, I, I stepped aside between those two races uh, to marrying Elizabeth and, and cementing my relationship in the Bagore family. Um, and then we come back to, to win the flight stake uh, honour. Yeah, came from was, way back, it, didn't she, and stormed home. So that was her style. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you had to forget about her early, but she could finish off. And uh, I remember weaving my way through the field and you know, some, some good horses uh, in, in that race, fillies that went on with the job mm. um, and, and jockeys too, you know, and that was, again, it was important to win not only a group race, but to go to Sydney and, uh, and, and prove your, your, your prowess was yeah. very exciting. And still being an apprentice, uh, nine times out of ten, you know, if the Queensland horses went to Sydney, the jocks didn't go with them. They, you know, you, you had the likes of, you know, there was Dittman or Quinton or, you know, Sydney was very powerful. And uh, I, I was lucky enough that the Headleys, I'd, I'd built a good relationship with the owners, Mr. and Mrs. Headley, had a bit of, of an affinity with the with the filly. Mm. Um, obviously, being with the family, you know, Doug and June had, had taken me under their, their house. I was, I was best mates with their son, Dan. Uh, yeah, they, they were good days. And the late Doug Bagore, of course, who was your father-in-law for a short time, also trained Strawberry Road, with whom he won two derbies, Queensland and AJC. He won the Rosehill Guineas and the WS Cox Plate, while Danny Bagore went on to great success with the crack sprinter Falvalon. Now, Shane, we're going to pause now. In fact, we're going to bring the curtain down on segment one, of our podcast chat. We'll be back with you for segment two in one click. 